So, uh, yes, you've been working through a series on foundations, and these are the different themes that you have already or are or will uh, be looking at, and this week we're looking at covenant. <laughs> and the, the themes there are all linked to each other. Um, if you spare a moment to think about the different ways in which these things are linked to each other. And that's one of the things that we'll be looking at as we look at covenant today. The, the way in which these things, these key concepts are actually linked together. So that they're more than a foundation. A foundation is like something solid on which you build a structure. But the way in which these things are all linked together means that the framework of, of the structure that's built, they form that framework as well. So it's a foundation and more because it shapes the structure that's built on the, on the foundation. Uh, it's more than just like this two-dimensional foundation. It's three-dimensional and more because it shapes everything that we understand about who God is and about his relationship with us. They're linked together in the, in the concepts of what they are. They're linked together when you read through scriptures and see the way in which these different themes are linked together. And they're linked together in our own individual experience uh, and in our collective experience. My experience of God, which is one of these themes, is linked to my experience of his creation. And it's linked to my experience of worship, the temple side of things. It's linked to all of it, all of it. It's all linked together uh, in concept, in the biblical record and in my experience and our experience. So yes, we're looking at covenant this week and this follows um, Elise reading to us from Genesis chapters 15 to 17 last week and I won't be limiting the discussion to those three chapters but they're certainly a core part of what I'll be talking about today. There's actually seven, scholars recognise seven covenants that are set out in the scriptures. Um, six of them in the Old Testament and the covenant with us through Jesus is, is in the New Testament but all the foundation for it is laid down in the Old Testament and it all leads to what Jesus does for us under the New Covenant in the New Testament. And so I want to have a bit of a look at each of these but with a focus on, on a few of them. And there's some key scriptural references there. Uh, and if you're not able to write as fast as the slides flick through, um, the notes on which I base this talk I have here and I can make them available and all these references are actually included in the notes. So the first of these is the covenant that God makes with Adam and in a sense, with the whole of mankind in the Garden of Eden. God commanded humanity to be fruitful and to multiply. Just think of that for a moment. God commanded mankind through Adam to be fruitful. What does that mean, to be fruitful? Think about what that might mean for you. And to multiply. That was what God asked of Adam and Eve. And in return, they would have dominion over the earth and God would provide for them, provide food, food without working for it. And as you read through the rest of um, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, um, God kind of expands on it. And, and in fact, part of the covenant is that you can eat of the fruit of the tree of life. You can live forever in the Garden of Eden. But the one thing you can't do, this is all part of the deal, the one thing you can't do is eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. There's the package, there's the covenant. And as we know, chapter 3, Adam and Eve didn't keep their side of the deal. They could have, but they made a choice not to. And not keeping the agreement with God had consequences had consequences for them and for all of mankind. Banishment, pain, a life of pain, disease, hard work. You had to work for your food. It wasn't just provided in the garden. Thorns and thistles and death. 
And the banishment, God placed cherubim, angel warriors, at the gate of the garden, one on each side of the gate, with flaming arrows, flaming swords, to prevent Adam and Eve from returning to the garden. And that consequence of breaking that covenant in the very first book of the Bible echoes throughout history for all of us. But one of the principles of these covenants is that, if you like, the, the covenant's in two halves. There's something that God is doing for us out of the, His goodness and, and grace and mercy, and there's something He asks us to do for Him on the other half. And the halves are very, very uneven because God always honours His half. And we'll see that. Always. But we don't. We don't keep our side of the deal, just as Adam and Eve didn't keep their side of the deal. And the encouragement to all of us is the nature of a covenant, because of the nature of who God is, is that even when we fall short and we don't keep our side of the bargain, there's a way back to enjoy the blessings of the covenant. And in this case, remember, the two angel warriors and the flaming sword, you can't come back in to enjoy the fruits of eternal life in paradise. There is a way back, and the way back is Jesus, as we'll see a little bit later. But I just want to highlight the fact right now that the temple veil, the veil in the temple that separated the inner sanctum of the temple from the rest of the temple was decorated with cherubim, with warrior angels. You know, that, that's, that echoes what happened in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were banished, the two warrior angels. They're on the veil. And what happened to the veil when Jesus died? And in that, that's a symbolic way of showing us there is the way back to eternal life in paradise. That Jesus' death opened for us the gates to paradise. So there's always a way back when we don't keep our side of God's bargain. The next covenant that is mentioned in the scriptures, and God calls it a covenant with Noah. He promises Noah and through Noah all of mankind that he will never again allow floodwaters to cover the whole of the earth. Now, the floodwaters were a judgment by God of the evil world and everyone but Noah and his family perished in the floodwaters. That was Old Testament judgment. And the covenant is, God says, I'm not going to do that again. I am not going to allow the whole world to be flooded as a judgment on the world and my sign that this is true will be the rainbow. And we see the rainbow, how often do we see the rainbow in the sky? Not every single day, but we see it very, very, very frequently. All over the world, that rainbow is there. And every time you see that rainbow, you should remind yourself, God has promised not to destroy mankind with a flood. There will be judgment. One of the other themes we've been looking at. There will be judgment, and we'll talk about that a little bit more later. The next covenant is with Abram, and I'll come back to that one, so I'm just going to skip over that right now. There's a covenant with Moses. It's massive. It's the Ten Commandments. It's all the laws, hundreds of laws, that sort of flow from the Ten Commandments, explaining to Moses and God's chosen people how they should live in the world, and how they should express their worship for God. And God basically says, if you follow this law, you will be blessed, and if you don't follow this law, you will be cursed. That's the Mosaic covenant, the covenant with Moses. And out of that covenant comes the notion of the sacrifice that's celebrated at the time of Passover, which Paul spoke about when he introduced communion. All these things are linked, and our experience of our faith in Jesus is linked to this covenant, for example, because of the linkage between those symbols. 
There's a covenant with Aaron, Moses' brother. It's a covenant about priesthood. It's a covenant by which Aaron and the priests were set aside from the rest of God's people to administer the worship practices in the life of God's chosen people. To be the ones, Aaron, the high priest and his successors, the ones that could come into the innermost holy place and hear from God one day a year. But it was the priests that had that role. And the flip side of that covenant relationship was that God promised to look after the priests. They didn't have to own property. They didn't have to work. The gifts from the rest of the people sustained them in return for them giving their lives over to being responsible for practicing worship on behalf of all of God's people. So that was the covenant with Aaron. And part of the covenant is that there will always be priests serving me, fulfilled ultimately in Jesus, the, the ultimate high priest. And I'll have another look at that a little bit later. There's a covenant with David, the king. And the covenant with David is that there will always be one of your descendants on the throne in Jerusalem. That was the promise that God made to David. And I'm going to spend a little bit more time on this one because it's a good example of how a covenant is established at a point in the scriptures and then the scriptures from then on link back in some way from time to time maintaining that thread back to that promise that God made to David, reminding us about it, showing us where in scripture it's coming true again and again and again. So when we look, the, the covenant with David is established in 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 16. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. God promises an eternal kingdom through David and his descendants. An eternal king of God's eternal kingdom. Now, I just want to very quickly point out some of the other places in Scripture where this particular covenant is referenced, just to show how the, the thread continues through Scripture. When Solomon has just finished building the temple, Solomon was the son of David, Solomon was the next king after David, and Solomon gets the responsibility for building the temple in Jerusalem. And when he's finished, he consecrates the temple and he prays this great prayer, which I'm not going to read out or anything today, but it's there. And God then speaks to Solomon. 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 3 to 9. I've heard your prayer. I've heard the plea you have made before me. I have consecrated the temple. And then it goes on and on and on. And, it's, and it refers to, uh, I promised David your father when I said, you shall never fail to have a successor on the throne of David. So the covenant promise to David is referenced in God's conversation with Solomon. Again, 1 Kings chapter 11. Solomon doesn't necessarily follow God in the way that he should have done. He, he has many, 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 many wives from many, many, many different countries and he starts to be influenced by the things that they believe that are not of God. So really, he's, he's breaking the deal. He's not following God himself. But God says to him, I will not take the whole kingdom out of Solomon's hand. I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, my servant, whom I chose and who obeyed my command and decrees. So God is basically saying, Solomon's not really fit <laughs> for the role and he's, and he's not following me, but I'm still going to honour my promise to David. I'm not going to take the kingdom away from Solomon. When Solomon dies... His son, Rehoboam, another descendant of David, becomes the king. And Rehoboam also doesn't follow God's ways. And effectively, there's a civil war. The nation is divided into two. Ten tribes end up as the nation of Israel. Two end up as the nation of Judah. But God says in chapter 11, verses 35 to 39 of 1 Kings, 
He's talking to Jeroboam. I will take the kingdom from Rehoboam's hands and I'll give you, Jeroboam, ten tribes. But I will leave two tribes for Rehoboam because of my promise to David that there will always be a descendant of yours as king upon the throne in Jerusalem. Now, I paraphrase that a bit, but that's what's in that passage. So again, referencing back to this great covenantal promise that God made to David. 1 Kings chapter 15, um, another descendant of David, King Abijah. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem. Same point. 2 Kings 8, uh, it should be 18, I reckon. Jehoram, nevertheless, for the sake of his servant David, the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah. We just keep being reminded. 2 Kings 19, Hezekiah and 20. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. God just keeps referring back to this covenant and the thread is woven all the way through the scriptures. The prophets refer to it. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, they all refer to this promise that God made to David. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, the first chapter in the New Testament, we see the, the genealogy of Jesus links back to David, the king of Israel, or the king of Judah, the king of God's chosen people in Jerusalem. And it makes the connection between Jesus, who's the ultimate successor in the line of David, and the eternal king of the eternal kingdom. So there it is in the New Testament. And lastly, when Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem, days before he dies on the cross, the people cry out in praise and worship in Mark's Gospel, chapter 11, verses 9 and 10. What do they say? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So all the way through scripture, this promise that's made to David surfaces again and again and again. All right. The last covenant to which we will refer is the new covenant between God and us through Jesus. And um, the specific reference to this agreement being a covenant is in Luke chapter 22 verse 20 when Jesus institutes communion that we just shared. And that's all I'll say about it at the moment. But it's very important, very, very, very important for us today is that we live under this new covenant with God through Jesus. All right, let's go back to Abraham. And I want to, I want to just dissect the covenant a little bit, the covenant God had with Abraham and see what were the different elements of that covenant. What are some things that we can see in that covenant and learn from it? The first one is that there's promise there's promise to Abraham. There's a promise that Abraham will become a great nation and will be blessed. There's a promise that his name will be great and that he will be a blessing to others. There's a promise that those whom Abraham blesses, God will bless. And those whom Abraham curses, God will curse. There's a promise that all people on earth will be blessed through Abraham. This is in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 to 3, a few, a few chapters before the passage that Elise read last week. That, that's an amazing promise from God to Abraham. And through Abraham to all of us, you know, all of mankind will be blessed through Abraham. That's an extraordinary promise. And it's interesting in the subsequent 25 years of Abraham's life, 25 years or more of Abraham's life, how God weaves more into this promise, this covenant. He explains more about it as time progresses. It's not just uh, all given from God to Abraham. At one point, God actually keeps adding to it and building it. So, um, in chapter 
12 verse 7 of Genesis. A bit more information. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. They're actually standing looking out over the land. And, and God says to Abraham, This is it. This is the land I'm giving you. Um, and so Abraham built an altar there to express praise to the Lord. Um, in chapter 12, verses 11 to 20, Abraham made an appalling misjudgment. He, he went to Egypt, don't worry about why, and he had a beautiful wife, and he thought, the king of this country is going to fall in love with my wife, and um, he's going to want her, and so he presents Sarah as his sister, basically doesn't acknowledge that she's his wife, and so Pharaoh takes Sarah to live with him, um, and Pharaoh then becomes sick and, you know, discerns what's going on and is angry with Abraham. Now, you just imagine if you had done something like that, misled the king of Egypt at, at the peak of Egypt's power, you'd misled the king of Egypt and he had suffered terrible disease as a result of you misleading him. What might happen to you? I mean, I, but God protects Abraham even when Abraham does something really, really dumb. And, you know, that's an encouragement to all of us. It's part of this thing that the covenant, God's side of the covenant is always there. It's not going to change. But we might not be able to keep our side of the covenant. And I'm not saying that, that what Abraham did in that case was a specific aspect of the covenant. I am saying that Abraham remained under God's protection and favour even when he did some really dumb things. And that's a good example. In, in chapter 13, verse 2, prosperity. Abraham had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and in gold. You know, it's just a, a, a confirmation that the things God had promised to Abraham have, have come to be. In verses 14 to 17, um, Abraham and Lot, his nephew, have decided to uh, do their farming and, and um, tending animals and everything in different parts of the land because they're competing with each other a bit too much, so they separate. And at that point, God says to Abraham, after Lot's gone somewhere else, look around you to the north and the south and the east and the west. This is the land that I've given you. It's, it's a restatement of the covenant. It's referring back to that covenant. Walk the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. There's favour. Genesis chapter 14. Five kings band together and raid the land that Abraham's living in and the neighbouring land and they, they take Lot prisoner and drag him off and Abraham goes after them with his small band of mighty men, goes after these five kings and their army, and he rescues Lot and he defeats the marauding kings. It's an example of the favour that God bestowed upon Abraham under this covenant, where Abraham achieves things against all the odds in the, in the land around him at that point in history. And then we get uh, the promise to Abraham about his own son, his own offspring, and the way in which that side of the covenant that God made with him is going to be fulfilled. Because Abraham's getting desperate. He's an old man, uh, and, and, the way, and he hasn't got any sons, and the way he sees it, his estate is going to go to one of his servants, slaves. And God says to him, no, 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 not that guy. Your own flesh and blood, your own son will be your heir. I'm going to fulfill that covenant I made with you. It, it will come true. Um, and he actually says, look up at the sky and count the stars. That's how many descendants you're going to have and more. And in verse 18 to 21 of chapter 15, um, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants I give this land. Again, it's about the land and he's pointing out the boundaries of the land and everything. So the covenant is kind of, it's not just one event, one moment in history, one contract signed here. God builds it up 
over these latter years of Abraham's life uh, and all the different elements of it. And each, uh, each stage adds to what's already been put in place, amplifies it, extends it, elaborates on it. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. And it goes through the covenant agreement again and it adds to it. I will make nations of you, yes, we already know that, and kings will come from you, added to the original covenant. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. So there's a promise that God will be our God for all time. And then down through the ages, the covenant promise to Abraham is again, like the, the covenant promise to David, the covenant promise to Abraham crops up again and again and again through the remainder of Scripture. Genesis chapter 17 verse 19 he says that uh, you will have a son, I want you to call him Isaac, and I will renew my covenant with Isaac. In chapter 17, verse 21, I will establish my covenant with Isaac. In Genesis 26, chapter, verses 2 to 5, that's what happens. God re-establishes the covenant with Isaac. In Genesis 28, verses 13 to 15, God re-establishes the covenant with Isaac's son, Jacob. In Exodus chapter 2, 24, after 400 years of exile as slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, God heard the groaning of his people and he remembered his covenant with Abraham. It keeps coming up. Leviticus chapter 26, 42. I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. And I will remember the land. It keeps coming up. 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 23. This is Israel during the time of Jehoahaz. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion and showed concern for them because of his covenant with Abraham. His covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, to this day he has been unwilling to destroy them or banish them from his presence. And I want to leap all the way to Acts chapter 7. Stephen is about to be martyred for his faith in Jesus. And these are his last words, a, a speech to the people gathered at the place of his execution. And he starts with the covenant of circumcision that God made with Abraham. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Isaac became the father of Jacob. Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. And Stephen then goes through a potted history leading to who Jesus is. And in that potted history crop up Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Aaron, Joshua, David, Solomon and many others referencing people who've lived under the covenant and, and covenants that God made with his people. And so the way in which Stephen, at his last opportunity to speak to the public gathered about who Jesus is, he references all these covenantal figures. They're the foundation of what he now believes of Jesus. And so that's the way he presents it. So the promise that God made to Abraham, promises I should really say because it's a multifold promise, are part of what the covenant was all about. Another is the symbolic acts. So part of it is um, a, a heifer, a lamb and a goat were actually cut in half and the two halves were put each to one side and the whole idea was the two parties to the covenant walked between the 
severed bodies of these sacrificial animals uh, and they're saying if I break this agreement that I'm accepting the fact that that's what should happen to me. I, I should be treated the same way that we've just treated. That, that's that's uh, what a covenant is. That's the Old Testament understanding of what how a, an agreement of this sort was formalised between the two parties. So that's what happens. Genesis chapter 15 verses 8 to 10 and in 17. Um, and then when the sun set, darkness fell, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed through the pieces. And that was God saying, I'm going to honour this covenant. Also in, uh, in chapter 17, also in the passage that Elise read last week, not very much is asked of mankind, of Abraham. He's asked to circumcise um, the male members of the chosen people. That's, that's the way in which Abraham is asked to show his agreement with the covenant. And th this is another example of something that crops up again subsequently in the scriptures. So when, again, this is after the exodus from Egypt to which Paul referred, after the 400 years of slavery and everything, 40 years wandering in the wilderness, and Joshua is on the banks of the Jordan River about to cross over into the promised land and there's a whole generation of warriors who haven't been circumcised. During that whole season that, that the, God's chosen people were wandering in the wilderness, they didn't practice the rite of circumcision. So there's a whole lot of guys who haven't fulfilled this side of the covenant that God made with Abraham and before they step over into the promised land, which God has made available to them, they are all circumcised. And, and I, I, I only refer to this because it's an example of these threads of the covenant agreements cropping up again and again and again through the remainder of Scripture. Uh, Joshua and the people recognised that they had to make sure they'd fulfilled their side of the agreement before they stepped into the land to receive God's side of the agreement, the promised land. There's another element of the covenant. God encourages Abraham in, in chapter 15 verse 1, do not be afraid Abraham, I am your shield and your very great reward. It's a real encouragement. Chapter 15 verse 7, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. God's basically saying, you can trust me, I'm, I'm good for my side of this agreement. Don't, don't doubt it, don't be afraid, it's not going um, to happen. It is. I'm encouraging you to know Abraham, I'm good for my side of this deal. Chapter 15 verse 11 to 16. Interesting, they've just done this thing with the sacrificial animals, cut them in half, and then what happens? Birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Now, I don't just think the sun set and there were a couple of clouds and it got a bit dark. This sounds like a real mental anguish to me, a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. So this covenant I've just made with you, there's going to be things happen which cause you to doubt whether it will in fact come to place. There's things that will happen that your, your descendants, your followers, they'll think, uh, that's, that's just not going to happen anymore. You know, we've been here making bricks for 300 years. God's not helping us. Most of them have probably even forgotten who he was. So in the midst of this, what are these vultures doing taking away these, this, this important... <laughs> these symbols of this important agreement of, you know, get away. But God actually uses that. God uses the thick and dreadful darkness that descends on Abraham. He uses it to say to Abraham, look, 
things aren't always going to turn out the way you might think this promise to you is going to turn out. In fact, how specific can you be? For 400 years, your descendants are going to be slaves in another country, etc., etc. That's a very, very explicit, very specific um, indication of what's going to happen. Now, you read the scriptures. It was exactly 400 years. Exactly 400 years that God's people spent in Egypt. You know, God's word is the truth. And he promises Abraham in the same passage, you, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. And so, God's encouraging Abraham, even when it looks like something's going wrong. The vultures have come and stolen, you know, defiled this sacrifice. It's still going to come good. All right. The next thing I wanted to talk about was a lack of faith. Now, where was Abraham's lack of faith expressed? God promised him a son through Sarah. And he couldn't see how that was going to work out because Sarah's too old. So, uh, he and Sarah conspired and agreed that Abraham would sleep with Hagar and have a son through Hagar and that son could be you know, Abraham's way of fulfilling this promise that God had made to him. So, Abraham lacked complete faith in what God had promised him and, that's, and it's shown right there. And there are consequences of that lack of faith which are lived out in the world today. Because Hagar's son Ishmael was the father of the Arab nations and God's chosen people and the Arab nations are at war, at war even today. And in many different ways, over the years, the Arab nations have sought to disrupt God's plans and purposes for his chosen people and for mankind. So that lack of faith has had consequences. But it hasn't destroyed the integrity of God's promise to Abraham and to all of us through Abraham. All right. There's great faith, and it actually says of Abraham... So, despite the lack of faith, there's great faith. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. What that means is, because of Abraham's faith in God, Abraham was made right to stand beside God. And we are made righteous by Jesus' death on the cross if we have faith in Jesus. In the same way, through Jesus' death, we are made right to stand with God in eternity. That's part of the new covenant. Abram's faith is tested. This son, Isaac, that has been promised to Abraham by God as the, like the, the next generation in this promise about your descendants being too many to number, as many as the sands on the sea, the stars in the sky, Abraham is asked by God in Genesis chapter 22 to take this son up the mountain and to sacrifice him. It just doesn't fit, does it? Except that Abraham is being tested by God. How strong is your faith? And I, I think this is amazing because Isaac, as Abraham's son, is the key expression of this promise that God made to, um, to Abraham. And it's as if, well, if I go through with this and it actually ends up the way you've just, I do what you've asked me to do, that's punched a big hole in the covenant in your side of the agreement, God. I don't know how this is going to play out. It doesn't look right but you've asked me to do it and I trust you. I trust you for your side of the covenant. I'm going to do what you ask. And Abraham takes his son 
the chosen son, Isaac, up the mountain and all but sacrifices him on the altar. And then God says, well, I've seen your faith. There's actually a lamb here caught in the bushes. I want you to sacrifice that lamb and not your son. But, but Abraham's face, faith was tested. And our faith is tested. And it's easy to experience things in our life which cause us to doubt the things that God has promised us. But we look at the scriptures and we see that God's covenantal promises to his people, he always keeps his side of the deal. And we just have to keep our faith in that fact. Right. We're nearly there. And there's a bit of a change of tack. But I want to ask you, the sorts of things that we've been talking about today and the sorts of things that you've talked about in the previous parts of this series on, on foundations, where do you engage with them? Where? And I'm thinking about covenant in this particular case. And the point I'd like to make is it could just be an idea that you engage with in your head. You think about it. You know, you read about it, you think about it. That could be where it sits. In amongst every other thing <laughs> that your senses take into your head, you know, the things you see, the things you hear, whatever, all those things bouncing around and you're thinking about them. And somewhere in the midst of all that stuff, you're thinking about God's covenants and what that might mean, blah, 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 blah. Now, I know that happens, but I don't think that's the right place for us to store our engagement with the idea of covenant and the other key themes of the scripture that you've been looking at over the last couple of months. I think it's here in your heart. Because if you, if you allow an understanding of what covenant is to shape your heart you'll be equipped to deal with whatever the world throws at you in the meantime as we await our place in eternity. If you don't allow these things to shape your heart, which of the other thoughts buzzing around up here are going to shape your heart? Uh, this is the other option, the covenants, oh yeah, whatever, it's just out there, some people go on about it a bit, you know, not even receiving it into your thinking. Well, I don't think we need to say too much about that here today, but that's the world. That's, that's where the world engages with this idea. Oh, yeah, whatever. Time for another coffee or something. So, uh, I would like to suggest that we need to be conscious about moving our thinking about covenant and faith and sacrifice and temple and God and creation and judgment and Messiah, allow those things to shape our heart. Don't just let them be things we engage with intellectually like maths homework or whatever it might be. Because these are the times we live in. We live in times of floods and fires, and earthquakes, and volcanic eruptions, and poverty, and plague, and wars, and rumours of wars. And these are the things that Jesus referred to as signs of what was going to happen before he returned. And in these times, I could allow a fear of global warming to rule my life. I could be fearful, despairing, ultimately depressed because I'm allowing what I read in the newspapers and what I see on TV and what I hear people saying to shape my heart. I could allow... my reaction to what's happening in Ukraine at the moment as just one example of 
horrible conflict in the world and horrible behaviour from one to another, I could allow that to shape my heart. And I could become angry and I could want to go off and be one of those people fighting against this terrible thing out of anger. Or I could be depressed and I don't have to say all this. You can see how my exposure through whatever I see and hear and can shape my heart in these times. COVID, a plague. I could allow my fear about that to shape my heart, which then defines how I behave in the world and how I'm seen by other people, how much energy I've got for each day, whatever it might be. But we know, we know that Jesus is coming back. That's a covenantal promise. We know it's soon. Now, I don't know what soon means. It means whatever God wants it to mean. But it's soon. And we know that because we look at the signs that Jesus identified. And these are the things that are happening in our world today. And there is no more important time for our hearts to be shaped by the covenant promises of God and our understanding of those covenant promises, to be shaped by our understanding of God, our understanding of his creation, our understanding of the judgment that will come when Jesus returns, our understanding of his place as Messiah, all these things. There's no more important time than for our, heart, for our hearts to be shaped by those things. Okay. So these are the themes that you've been looking at. I haven't quite finished, but these are the themes. And on the subject of covenant, these are the covenants that we've had a look at today. And we had a particular look at Adam, a particular look at Abraham, a particular look at David, and I've referred to the new covenant with us through Jesus a number of times. And I just want to make the point that Jesus is an integral part of every one of those themes. He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the fulfillment of the covenant. He's the ultimate sacrifice. Our side of the new covenant is our faith in Jesus. He will return in judgment. The temple that is spoken about in the Old Testament is a temple in our heart. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, given the, the Holy Spirit given by Jesus as our comforter to be with us while he's away preparing our place in the kingdom. Jesus was man. He's part of creation. It's all linked. And then you look at the, the covenant promises, those seven covenant promises. Jesus is either the ultimate expression of each one of those promises or in the case of the new covenant, he's it. He is the expression of the covenant God has made with us and it's our faith in Jesus that fulfills our side of that covenant. So I would just like us all to reflect for a few moments on the need to allow what we've learnt in this series and what we've learnt today to shape our hearts. I'd like to pray. I'm praying for everybody here and I'm praying for everybody who's at home. I'm asking you, Lord Jesus, through your Holy Spirit to help us shape our hearts through the knowledge of who you are, the knowledge of what is revealed to us about you and about God through the scriptures, the knowledge of your covenant promises to your people and through your people to us, your people, Lord God. 
We know our heads are filled with all sorts of other information. Heavenly Father, I pray that through your Holy Spirit you allow only those things that are an expression of your plans and purposes for mankind to get through that filter and to shape our heart, Lord, that our hearts will be pure, that with pure hearts we'll be a we will be a testament to the rest of the world about who you are, Lord Jesus, what you've done for us on the cross, Lord Jesus, your glorious victory over sin and death, Lord Jesus, your time away preparing a home for us in heaven, Lord Jesus, your promise to return as the bridegroom of your bride, the church, that these things shape our heart, Lord God. Let us not be beaten down by what we see happening in the world around us, to the environment, to nations, to individuals, Let our hearts be shaped as you would shape them, Lord God. Let our hearts resonate with your heart, God, our Father in heaven. And I want to pray a blessing of encouragement over each person here today, in Jesus' name, that we'll be encouraged by what we know of you, Lord God, that we will not be fearful of what we see in the world around us, We live to see your return, Lord Jesus. Our heart's desire is to spend eternity with you, God our Father, in heaven, free of sickness, free of death. Thank you for your promises, your covenantal promises to us, Lord God. Thank you for the sure knowledge that you always keep your side of the bargain and be merciful on us, we pray, when we fail to do so. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.